Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond, and I want to thank you for joining me today for another episode. Today's episode, I have Casey Means on. Casey Means is the co-founder of Levels Health, which is a technology company that has designed a product that allows users to monitor in real time what their blood sugar levels are. Now, I've been kind of a health enthusiast for quite some time, and I feel like blood sugar has become quite underrated. As I learn more, and it's been brought to my attention that our blood sugar levels are at the core of so many of the components of our health, especially when you're looking at trying to avoid the common disease processes that seem to take so many lives every year. So when designing a lifestyle with a long-term approach, accounting for these mechanisms in our body that kind of go awry when we have too much sugar too often in our bloodstream I think is really paramount. So as someone that feels compelled to help people take more power over their own sense of well-being, being able to have real-time data that tells you how your body is responding to the foods you eat is really important and how your body is responding to environmental uh, conditions also. So before, these products were really expensive and not really um, you know, available to most people in the public. And oftentimes people just think of them as a tool for people that suffer from diabetes to help manage that disease. But really everybody could benefit from the information that we get so that you could adjust your lifestyle choices to help you improve the probability of uh, you know, just a terrific lifespan and health span. 
So now that these technologies are available, it's like at our fingertips. And it's very interesting. It's been a really eye-opening experience. I've, I wore one of these devices for the last few weeks. And I wore it past the time of the recording this interview. Some, and so I'll talk in the interview about some things that I noticed and some benefits. But I wanted to touch on one that wasn't covered in the interview. And it was kind of a surprise for me. And that was really the relationship of my blood sugar levels to my mood. And I would say they're inversely related in a way. So like if my blood sugar was, let's say, healthy, stable, and low, my mood seemed to be more positive and relaxed and calm, which I really like feeling that way. So uh, I love that barometer uh, to see, you know, how my choices, if they serve me well or not. And then, of course, inversely, if I noticed my mood was off, I felt agitated or maybe um, had a higher than average experience of anxiety, I was able to correlate that to the times where my sugar levels were high. And sometimes my sugar levels were high because part of the idea of this mechanism is not to wear forever, but to just wear for a little while to gain some information that, that you could use, then you could apply. Now some people really love it and they might use it as a long-term strategy, but I think for most you could benefit a lot from just a try. And it, it's interesting to see the information and notice how it's reflected in the way you feel. And I think that's just a great opportunity for us to be able to access this information that before wasn't really. Now this product isn't really out to the public yet. I think it's a few months away. Right now there's a wait list of about 55,000 people waiting for this product. And I'm really happy to announce that Casey was nice enough to offer our listeners a way to kind of bypass that wait list and get into the beta program that I just took part in. Uh, now you could do this, I'm mentioning it now because we didn't cover it in the interview, but if you go to levels.link forward slash mindful, you will have an invitation to do a trial of the product and I assure you, you won't regret it. It is really cool and I think the benefits, the long-term benefits from this short-term trial are just so potentially profound and you know I just think I'm, I'm just really excited that this is available to people. Now I strongly believe that you should compose your lifestyle around the basics meaning uh, getting clean air, sunshine, clean water, healthy food, prioritizing your sleep, managing your stress, building strong relationships with not just yourself, but your environment and loved ones and friends. But there's times where technology can offer just an outs just a huge opportunity. And they're great and some of them are really expensive and they never truly offset the benefits of sticking to the basics, even though they can absolutely enhance, enhance your lifestyle and your health. But this one is really cool because it's really reasonably priced, I think, and the value you get out of it is just so much greater than that cost. So I'm excited for people to be able to try this, see how the observation of what's going on in their body and that feedback loop they get changes their behavior. And I'm really looking forward to the feedback to the community 
of what this product does for you if you do take advantage. If you have no interest in taking advantage of it, there's still a lot to learn in this interview. Casey has a nice overview of really what blood sugar levels are, what they mean, and what disease processes can manifest if the system that we have internally to regulate this kind of goes awry. So I thank you for listening to this long-winded intro, and of course, I'm grateful for your listening today, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond, and I want to thank you for joining me today for another episode. I'm super excited. I have Casey Means on the podcast today. Casey Means is a Stanford-trained physician. She's the chief medical officer and the co-founder of the metabolic health company Levels. She's an associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. And I'm super stoked. I have tons of questions for, for Casey. Casey, please say hello to the Mindful Movement audience. Hello, Mindful Movement audience. Les, thank you so much for having me today. So glad to be here. I'm very grateful that you came on. And I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. Uh, for those that are watching this on YouTube, you can see I'm wearing this real strange sticker on the back of my arm. And uh, this has come into existence because of some of Casey's work. It is a continuous glucose monitor that I find has been really helpful for me when I'm trying to, I guess, figure out what are the foods that agree with me most and also how other lifestyle things affect our blood sugar level, which has been really eye-opening that hopefully we'll uh, take a little dive onto today. But first, Casey, maybe you could tell the audience kind of where you came from and how you got to where you are putting out this tech to kind of help the the population become healthier. Sure, absolutely. So I am a you know metabolic health enthusiast at this point. Really, my core focus of my my entrepreneurial work and my practice right now is metabolic optimization and how people get their glucose under control and uh, get their glucose to be as flat and stable as possible. And so, you know, it was kind of a circuitous route to getting here. I actually started my medical career as a ear, nose and throat head and neck surgeon. So I was at Stanford for my undergrad in medical school. And then I came up to Oregon for uh, my, my residency in, in ear, nose and throat. And in that field, it was quite interesting because after, you know, four and a half years or so, I'm sort of, you know, day in and day out in the operating room. And I'm, I'm kind of reflecting on the types of things that I'm doing. And I realized that almost all of the conditions I was treating were fundamentally inflammatory in nature. So it was like sinusitis, laryngitis, thyroiditis, all these itises, which are, you know, it's the suffix in healthcare that means inflammation, itis. And you know, I was kind of slinging steroids left and right, these immune suppressant type medications, nasal steroids, topical steroids, inhaled steroids, IV steroids. It's a lot of medication that really tamps down the immune system. And when those don't work, we take people to the operating room and we bust holes in things like the sinus and we suck pus out. And I kind of came to this realization, like I'm prescribing a lot of medication to turn down the immune response. And I'm sucking a lot of pus out of sinuses and ears and all these places, but you, you fundamentally, you can't actually operate on the immune system. And so it felt very much like a band-aid to me. Like, why aren't we actually addressing the root cause physiology of what is causing inflammation in all these patients? And 
unfortunately you see patients come back, you know, season after season, year after year with some, some recurrence of these conditions. And I, I started really feeling like maybe this is because we are not actually addressing what the fundamental triggers of inflammation in the body are. And this led me into a real journey, uh, diving deep into the functional medicine world and listening to so many of these great authors who are publishing books about root cause medicine. So people like Mark Hyman and Sarah Gottfried and Terry Walls and reading about the gut and the gut brain axis and all these things. And became really fixated on how can we keep people out of operating room? How can we help empower people to change these modifiable dietary and lifestyle factors that we know contribute to inflammation? The food we eat, how we stress, how much sleep we're getting, the amount of movement we're doing, the toxins we're exposed to in our food, water, and air. These all drive into revving up our immune system and I think really feed into a lot of these chronic conditions I was seeing. And we know that outside of ENT, these, these are feeding into so many of the chronic conditions that we're seeing today, the development of diabetes, obesity, dementia, heart disease, a lot of the big killers, cancer. So kind of moved away from the operating room, started focusing on really root cause healthcare, opened my own functional medicine private practice, got trained to the Institute for Functional Medicine, and did that for a, a couple of years and, and really started, I mean, I was just, it was an incredible transition because I was so grateful to be able to be helping people really deeply dive into their all aspects of their life and their health behaviors and, and really empower people to take ownership over some of these health behaviors to, to turn their health around, to create conditions in the body that were going to be healthy. And then I became really focused on, okay, I'm doing this for like 15, 20 patients a week. I'm spending two hours with each patient, but how do we scale this? How do we make this bigger? How do we empower people to make these decisions that are going to be ultimately great for foundational fundamental health? And something I really landed on was I wanted to help people figure out how to control their blood sugar better. Blood sugar, high blood sugar is a huge driver of inflammation in the body. And it's actually really quite simple to keep our blood sugar stable. And as the average American eating the standard American diet, our blood sugar is just all over the place. Um, and, and that is just, I think, really underlying so many of the health conditions we're seeing today. So teamed up with my co-founders at Levels, um, and we started this company that gets this incredible technology, continuous glucose monitors, to the mainstream. This is a technology that traditionally was actually FDA approved for the management of diabetes, these overt uh, disorders of blood glucose, but we see this huge potential for getting this into the hands of everyone. And anyone who eats food basically could benefit from understanding better how food is impacting their body in real time. And we've never had that ability to have real time biofeedback on what we're putting in our mouths. We've had biofeedback for sleep, for stress, for exercise, but never for food. So really the way that ties in is like, how do we give people these tools so that they can day in and day out make choices that ultimately are gonna lead to you know, a less inflammatory state in the body, um, better fundamental health, and, you know, ideally kind of circling back to surgery, keeping them out of the operating room as, as best we can. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for that summary. Yeah, I mean, with food, it's like, there's so much information, it's, it's hard to know what's right for you. And I like that this technology seems to take a lot of the guesswork out, because you just can't lie. I mean, you, you can't fudge it, like you eat something, and the device is going to tell you, how your body is responding to that. And I'm sure just because the vast spectrum of like genetics and environmental environments that people have throughout the world and different upbringings, like everybody's different. So what's good for you might be very different for someone else. 
And, you know, if you don't have some type of feedback, you're, you're really just guessing. What, what is it about blood sugar? I mean, I've, I've heard this explained a little bit. I'm not an expert on the topic by any means. Um, but I, I know that in, in the environment that I work with clients over the years, we're always talking about health related things. And one thing is obvious is people don't know, like people don't know what it means to really maintain a proper le level of blood sugar and the costs in not doing so. Like what happens when we eat to our blood sugar? Like what is it supposed to be? And what happens when it goes awry? Like how does that mechanism take place? Yeah, so we can kind of jump into some of the, the science a little bit, because I think it's helpful to understand sort of what's happening when you eat and then to realize how that's feeding into a lot of the problems we're facing today. So first thing I'll say is that we're not doing a good job of managing our blood sugar in the United States. We are exposed to astronomical amounts of carbohydrates and sugar in our in our culture. And it's estimated that the average American's eating average American is eating between 150 to 200 pounds of sugar, refined sugar per year. And we were probably eating about one pound of refined sugar per year around hundred years ago. So that's wow. a lot for our body to process. Like this has to be processed by all our cells. And when you think about that, just monumental burden, you can imagine how we could be leading to some problems, so many problems by, by that astronomical um, that load. Uh, right now we have 128 million Americans with prediabetes or diabetes. So that's almost a third of the country with a diagnosed metabolic blood wow. sugar disorder. And of those, of those 90 million are prediabetic and most of them do not know that they have prediabetes. And so it's just something that we're really, it's, we're walking around with these blood sugar problems, many of us, and aren't really aware of it. So the reason it's sort of a problem to have dysregulated blood sugar is because a lot of things happen. Our body, our body really tries to keep glucose in a very, very narrow range. And when it goes out of that range, we see a lot of different physiology stemming out of that. We see, like I mentioned, inflammation can occur when blood sugar is quite high. We see oxidative stress. So too many free radicals generated in the body, which are these damaging metabolic byproducts that can hurt uh, the function of tissues in the body. And then we see a process also called glycation, which is where sugar actually just sticks to things in the body and causes dysfunction. So inflammation, oxidative glycation, three problems with high blood sugar levels. And then the second part of this is, is not just the sugar, but what it's doing to our hormones. So high blood sugar, or really any blood sugar, that any sugar that you consume is going to cause an insulin release in the body. That's the hormone from the pancreas that tells our cells to take glucose out of the bloodstream so that it can be used for energy. Glucose is this core energetic um, building block in the body. We take it into our cells and then it's converted into a form of energy that we can actually use. So it has to be converted by the mitochondria in the cells to ATP, which we can actually use for energy. And insulin is the gatekeeper that allows that glucose to be taken out of the cell, out of the bloodstream into the cells. But when we spike our glucose over and over and over again, day after day, multiple times per day with lots of snacks and refined sugar and carbohydrates, our body is taxed with having to produce lots and lots and lots of insulin. And ultimately the body can become what's called insulin resistant. It basically has just seen too much of this around and it 
sort of puts up a block to hearing this signal. And so to get the same amount of glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells, the body has to actually produce more insulin to overcome that resistance. And over time, you just get these higher and higher levels of insulin, what's called hyperinsulinemia. And that's a problem for a number of reasons. Insulin is a very pro-growth, pro-storage hormone in the body. So it's gonna tell your body to store fat. It's gonna tell your cells to um, replicate more, which is why it's implicated in cancers and driving cancers. Um, it's, it's not good to have those insulin levels creeping up. And then the flip side of insulin is that because it's a signal to the body that there's enough energy in the form of glucose in the body, it tells the body, oh, we've got enough of this on board. We don't need to use other forms of energy like fat, which is our other main sort of building block of energy in the body. So it's a big block on fat burning. So if our insulin is sort of chronically high, we are gonna have difficulty losing weight. We are gonna have difficulty losing, using fat for energy, like during workouts, we're gonna wake up, you know, super hungry in the morning because our body is, it doesn't ha hasn't had glucose overnight and it's not gonna be able to do that fat burning. And so we're gonna be like, oh, we have no energy. We're really, really hungry. Your body's gonna be dependent on glucose when insulin is high. So the state that we wanna be in is where you know we're getting enough glucose and carbohydrates from our diet to kind of give us a, a, a very normal and physiologically relevant amount of energy in the body, but not so much that we're causing this downstream cascade of insulin resistance and impairing our ability to burn fat. We want to be able to burn glucose when it's around and burn fat when we don't have enough glucose around. And right now we're kind of thwarting that ability by having these higher insulin states in the body um, and, and sort of blocking that ability to bounce back and forth between glucose and, and fat burning, which is a state called metabolic flexibility, which is what we want. So for all these reasons, the best thing we can do is shape our diet so that we're not causing these big glucose elevations with our meals and our food choices and kind of keep things a little bit more gentle, rolling hills of glucose, keep that insulin under control. And, you know, and, and just really be able to kind of, kind of move into that state of, of metabolic flexibility and, and just really controlled glucose levels. Gotcha. Well, thank you for that summary. Um, there was a lot of information there. The way I understand or I've heard it is that like this relationship with glucose and insulin is something that used to probably serve us very well when there was more like uncertainty and not randomness, but more fluctuation in the availability of food and the body's ability to say, hey, fat is a really good long-term energy storage system. So insulin kind of helped us put fat away so that we could last longer without food. But it's that system's kind of hijacked and, and backfires because of this availability that we have due to our current culture and our, and our habits. Am I understanding that right? Or That's exactly right. You can imagine in times of scarcity or food insecurity, this could be really helpful. You let's say, you know, total hypothetical, but you're, you're a hunter gatherer. You come across this incredible, you know, glucose source, like a bunch of berries or something. So you eat and you don't know the next time you're, you're getting food necessarily. So you eat all these berries, your insulin goes, your glucose goes way up. Your insulin goes way up. You utilize what you can from that for energy in the moment. And then your body actually stores that remaining glucose as either stored glucose in the liver, or it will actually convert it to fat for long-term storage. Insulin, like I mentioned, it's a pro-growth, pro-storage signal. It tells us to store fat and not to burn fat. 
So in that situation, that's great. You've used what you needed, you've stored the rest for later. Then you can imagine, let's say you're not eating for the next three days because you haven't found any more food. Well, you're not gonna have any glucose spikes during that time because you're not consuming any food. So your insulin's gonna be quite low and that's gonna take that break off fat burning and allow you to burn that fat for energy when you don't have the glucose around. And that's exactly that metabolic sort of flexibility switch. It's this, it's this kind of on off switch that lets us have access to different energetic substrates when we have different resources available. And because we are such a high carb sort of Western standard American diet now, we're just overloading the body with that glucose carb signal. And we're, you know, the insulin is still telling the body, cool, we've got all this glucose, store it, store it, store it, store it. And that's all, you know, turning into fat and, and we're never actually getting the opportunity to burn through that. So as of right now, 72% of the country is overweight or obese. And this is very much, I think, related to a very hijacked insulin system. And then the resistance is basically your body just getting worse over time because you're kind of, you're taking advantage of the system. You're overdoing it and then it becomes less um, like strong of a signal, like less effective of a signal. So it doesn't open, it's not, it's no longer a good gatekeeper. It doesn't open up the, the floodgates of the cell. From what I understand it, um, I guess there's a signaling a molecule, I guess, in the middle of the cell or in the lysosome, and it moves out to the cell membrane to open the doors and say, come on in, like, get nutrients in here. So that whole process just gets dumbed down, if you will. I think or? dumbed down is the perfect word. So you have insulin receptors on your cell membranes, and those are going to bind with this hormone insulin. And then what happens is this inside the cell, a whole cascade of events that causes glucose channels to go to the cell called glute channels. And that's going to allow that glucose to come in. That whole process is impaired in the process of insulin resistance. And part of it is that a lot of the glucose that we're eating and consuming when it's stored as fat, um, and we're also pairing these high carb diets with also a lot of fat in our diets, what happens is that inside the cell, you can actually get really gunked up with a number of different um, basically stored forms of glucose and fat. Um, and that actually from the inside of the cell blocks the insulin receptor from working properly. And that's really the root of insulin resistance. So not to get too much into the weeds, but it's, it's very much this sort of process of, of almost like a protective mechanism for the cell. Like we are too full. The in is full, like stop shoving glucose in this cell. Um, there's no space. We can't deal with it. And so it kind of blocks. So the nice thing is that as you then take a cell like that, that's insulin resistant and sort of like stopping that influx, uh, putting that, you know, dumbing it down, putting the brake on that through insulin resistance. If you then you know, really optimize conditions in the body, go into a more like lower glucose state, you know, optimize your diet so that you're, you're not getting these glucose spikes or do some intermittent fasting. What you're going to do is you're going to create this, these conditions in the body where your insulin is actually lower when you're not eating a lot of glucose or carbohydrates or fasting, your insulin is going to come down because you don't need it. There's not exogenous glucose coming in. And over time, the cell will perk up again, that it will start listening to that insulin signal a little bit sharper because it, it's, it's becoming insulin sensitive again. So you can very much move back and forth on this spectrum of insulin resistance based on 
how you're eating. And our goal is to help people with levels is to help people understand their diet better. So they understand the glycemic impact of the food they're eating, and then can hopefully work towards, you know, improving that insulin sensitivity over time by not overloading the body with this huge constant, you know, glucose signal. Gotcha. Yeah. One of the doctors I listened to, uh, doc, I don't know if you heard of him, Dr. Peter Atia. Love him. Okay. So I've been listening to Dr. T for a while now, and I get a lot of my, I guess, education about some of these things, because I guess he's somewhat um, obsessed with this stuff. And if you haven't checked out, he's got an outstanding podcast for the listeners out there. I highly recommend. But um, he put something in perspective once that I guess was startling to me, where he said the, the whole, all the blood in your body could only hold like about a teaspoon of sugar. It's like nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounded crazy. And the liver could hold, I guess, based on how big you are of a person, you know, maybe 80, 90, maybe a hundred grams, but then like, there's, it's no, there's nowhere else to go. And then you have muscle. So like there's, first of all, that's a good point that there's value in building muscle. Cause it's kind of like extra storage space for sugar. So, um, you know, it's like a glucose disposal system which is really, you know, helpful when you like to eat, (laughs) you could handle more, but it it was startling to hear like how little we could hold. So am I right in thinking or on track that if you ingest more than those amounts, you're essentially triggering some inflammatory process. Is that basically triggering inflammatory pathways when there's more sugar than your body has places to put it? Or is it just kind of affecting that insulin sensitivity? And then there's all kinds of potential disease pathways that are born out of that. Yeah, it's, it's both. So there's the glucose, there's the glucose specific physiology that can happen. Like I mentioned, like triggering inflammation, um, there's the glycation that can happen, which can, you know, the, st- the sticking of glucose to things, which can, you know, hurt your blood vessels and cause problems like that. And then there's the whole hormonal cascade that can happen, which is very problematic as well. And so both of those can contribute to a whole host of health conditions that, that we're seeing. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because <clears throat> what I think people don't quite recognize is that, <clears throat> and even the medical community doesn't fully recognize that so many of the massive conditions that we're dealing with in our country, actually seven of the 10 leading causes of death in the US are related to blood sugar dysfunction and metabolic dysfunction. And so it's not that it's just about diabetes or obesity, the obvious things that we're thinking about. You know, Blood sugar dysregulation directly leads to heart disease, high blood pressure, heart failure. It contributes to cancer, obviously non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, like you mentioned, chronic kidney disease, preventable blindness, even Alzheimer's, which is now being called type three diabetes, because when the brain is insulin resistant and can't get enough energy, um, you can imagine that could lead to dementia. It's related to chronic pain, fibromyalgia, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, depression, and anxiety, and erectile dysfunction and infertility, even sexual function. And I think, so that's sort of the long-term things that you might see amongst many others. And then even in the short term, it can be related to high and, you know, up and down blood sugar spikes can be related to our mood sort of changing throughout the day or sort of feeling low energy after a meal. If we have a big glucose spike and a big drop. And yeah, everybody's probably experienced that at some time you have that huge, I mean, we'll experience it tomorrow for 
that we're Thanks. recording this the day before Thanksgiving, where you know you feel like you're in a food coma after you, you know, how much food can I eat in one day, in one sitting? Yeah, I think, you know, and I, I would encourage people for the holidays to, to think about their meals through the lens of glucose to, you know, enjoy the meal, but maybe, you know, do some swaps that prevent some of the collateral damage of the meals. But, you know, I think, I think it kind of makes sense with how many of these conditions and symptoms are related to glucose, because we think about this, this metabolism, this, this processing of glucose for energy, this is like a core fundamental pathway in the body that affects every single cell. Every single cell in the body needs to process glucose efficiently, which means an efficient insulin sensitivity in order to convert glucose or fat to actual energy we can use. When cells don't get energy, they don't function. And we see symptoms and we see disease emerging. So you can imagine if this core fundamental pathway is screwed up, it could show its face in so many different ways, but depending on what cell type or tissue we're talking about. If it's the ovaries, it might look like infertility. If it's the brain, it might look like depression, anxiety, Alzheimer's, chronic pain, or fatigue. If it's the liver, it could be non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but it's really this insulin resistance and this out of control blood sugar is like the trunk of the tree with all these different branches that sort of seem different, but actually at their core, a lot of them have a very similar issue, which is, which is all these things we're talking about. And it comes down to the fact that cells need energy to function. They need to get it in an efficient way. And when we start messing with that, that, that process, um, which largely happens because we are overloading the body with glucose and creating this insulin resistance, making it difficult for cells to kind of actually even get glucose in because they're insulin resistant. You can imagine that could just create such a wide amount of clinical uh, results. And so yeah. while they seem different in a lot of ways, they're actually rooted in the same fundamental core physiology. Which is to me, like the exciting opportunity because you have all these things. I mean, you say seven out of the, I guess, top 10 killers or something. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's great news in a way, because it's like, oh, I could just focus on fewer things. And I guess based on genetics or other factors, that problem could manifest down any one of those branches you mentioned. But to be able to just focus on the trunk and, and say, let me just attack all of these at a potential source at a, at a, you know, a, a causal component is empowering. And, you know, you don't necessarily need technology to do that. But there's times where a little tech help from technology is like so useful and you could eliminate so much like guesswork. So I've been where I'll, I'll fill the listeners in on my experience with this. So I've been wearing one of these and I, re I remember hearing about these, I think listening to Dr. Tia for years and, you know, they sounded really expensive and you needed a prescription. And, um, and I remember even thinking like about contacting my doctor and seeing if I could get one, but I wasn't like diagnosed diabetes. I didn't see that happening. I just looked at it to, as an opportunity to optimize health. And, and when I heard about levels, I was really excited because I was like, oh, this is um, very, you know, obtainable. This is well-priced. It's, it's easy and you can get it. You don't need to go see your doctor first. So uh, you guys sent me the pack. I put it on. Uh, it's a really robust like software that comes with it that I wouldn't say it like, maybe it kind of like gamifies it a little bit. It kind of makes it like exciting. You have something to play with and 
you know, you're getting information from the inside of your body and then your phone is teaching you about it. And it's telling, and you know, you could log. So every time you have a meal, you could add a note, take a picture of the meal, you could write a description. And then over the next few hours, you'll see your response to that. And you could learn like, does this serve me? And there was some eye-opening moments for me where you know, I generally eat pretty well, but because of this was on, I looked at it as an opportunity to kind of test some things. And I think that's part of the idea, like challenge. I think you guys call it, you give even ideas of how to challenge your system to see, you know, something that you would normally cheat with or, and it was kind of alarming. And, um, and like, I, I had this thought in my mind that white rice, I already kind of knew it wasn't good for me because it never satisfied me. I could eat an insane amount of it. And then usually afterwards, I feel like I'm in like pancreatic shock or something. But um, so sure enough, like I have uh, what otherwise would be a pretty healthy meal. Like it was a seafood broth with seaf with fresh seafood um, and a little bit of vegetables. But then there was a big bunch of white rice in it. And it was like a disaster on my score. And it's cool because you get, you know, daily emails of this is how your day did. And then it shows you like this, you know, it rates your meal. Basically, it puts a, a quantitative number to like, is that meal good for you or is it not? So like if you have a nine, it's like, oh, I ate this and I got a nine out of 10. Like I could eat this. It means this probably is not going to lead to all these seven, you know, killer diseases. But then like you get this red flag and it's like a five. And it's like, oh, there's a lesson here, but this is a gift because I could be guessing and, you know, you don't think much of it, but let's say I were to eat rice two or three times a week. Well, what does that look like over 20 or 30 years? There's thousands of thousands of like bombarding my, my signaling mechanism of insulin that it's a, it's a disaster over time. But now that I know it's like, it doesn't mean I'll never have it, but I'm, I won't eat it often and I won't eat a lot of it when I do. And it's, it's empowering to know, like I have that control. Um, let's see, but you know, overall it was funny. I was excited cause I cooked it up and my levels look pretty, you know, good. And I'm like, yeah, my blood sugar is good. And then it was humbling. Like I had the rice dish one day I had like some peanut butter jelly, like no, no bread. I just had a little peanut butter jelly. And it, again, it was a disaster. And I'm like, okay. And, and, Afterwards, I'm like, of course it is. It's peanut, like it's two tablespoons of straight fructose and sugar. Like, of course it's going to be a problem. But I would justify that all the time because of, you know, maybe my, I live an active lifestyle and I feel like I got room for that. It's no big deal, but maybe it is a big deal. And, but then I was pleasantly surprised on some dishes where I would have large amounts of food, um, food that I like, and I would respond really well to. And it's like reassuring, like, yeah, you're on the right track. You could eat these things. Um, so it's, it's really cool. I love the software. I love that the way that you guys display the information so you could quickly learn. And there's all kinds of articles you link to it too, to learn more and take deeper dives on topics. I think it's a terrific tool. I'm really grateful that it's in existence and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. I have another uh, week and a half or so with the, uh, the one that I'm wearing now. But I see myself coming back to this as a tool periodically, maybe 
every six to 12 months and just one to see if anything changes. I think it would be interesting to see because I bet there's foods that even though they don't agree you agree with you at one point, maybe as your health changes, maybe you could handle more or maybe you just need a bigger sample size where you change maybe the amount. One thing I haven't played with is, well, I know that if I eat, you know, an entire large sweet potato, it's not great for me, but that doesn't mean that a half a sweet potato is not. And sometimes I have control issues around quantities. So I have like, there's a lot of work you could do to like, you know, dive into the nuance of really fine tuning your routines. Absolutely. This is so, it's so fun to hear about, you know, your experience and what you learned. And I think that something that you really highlighted is that there are foods that you sometimes eat like rice or peanut butter and jelly. And this allowed you to see how foods that you like and that you eat intermittently are affecting you. And so it helps you make smarter, more personalized choices. I think there's this whole other category of things that I know for me has been really interesting, which is like foods where you actually think they're totally okay, but then you get surprised by what you, you see. So an example for me would be ketchup. So, you know, I, I would put ketchup on things here and there, you know, if I'm making like a black bean burger or something, um, and I would eat a meal where I'm like, oh, this is going to have no glucose response at all. And then I'd see like a 50 point rise in my glucose, which is really, really high. And I'd get, you know, a terrible score. And then I'd be digging through the ingredients of what I ate and realize that, oh, that, that ketchup I ate, which maybe I ate like four tablespoons has, you know, six grams of added sugar per tablespoon. Like this is insane. So it was actually just like, it thwarted me unknowingly. So some of those surprises, salad dressings will often do that. Did you try but, again with like a lower sugar ketchup to see or? Oh yeah. I immediately bought, you know, Primal Kitchen's Primal Kitchen. no sugar right. ketchup on Amazon and, and I would never, will never go back. And of course it was fine. It has no sugar and it's, it's just, uh, it's just such a different, and actually I went to Whole Foods first because I was looking to see if there were any ketchups that I could find. And there was, they were actually out of Primal Kitchen that day. Not a single other ketchup in Whole Foods that did not have added refined sugar. And so I was just shocked. Um, but it's, you know, you see this for lots of different things. It's, it's like, it's soda obviously does sugar, but right. now it's in things like you wouldn't even expect. You just like marinades and, and, and salad It doesn't take much. Like you said, six grams. I mean, people don't realize how little sugar the body's really meant to handle at a time. What's, what is an ideal level? So when I was logging, when I was setting up the app, it basically asked me to set the parameters and I, I wasn't really sure. So what should, like, what's an ideal fasting blood sugar level and then post meal? I know that, you know, you want to monitor it after time. So like, you know, at 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes, two hours. What should it look like? Yeah. So what's interesting is that we haven't had a lot of guidance on this throughout in the past because continuous glucose monitors weren't a thing and certainly not a thing for people who are just, who are, who are non-diabetic, who are actually just trying to optimize their diet. So there's not a ton of guidance from like the medical community on what healthy glucose ranges are. So really where, where I come from and levels as well is, is actually just digging really deep into the research literature and trying to figure out clues to like, what is the optimal glucose levels for people to basically stay out of trouble. And 
really where it's kind of landed for me is that I try and stay between 70 and 110 milligrams per deciliter pretty much for the entire day. So that's to me sort of my healthy range. Sometimes I'll go up to like 120 if I get totally bamboozled by something, you know, like ketchup, like, like ketchup. <laughs> sometimes it will go up a little bit higher, but I mean, I really try and stick on a, on days when I'm cooking and I'm in control 70 to 110. I, a, a healthy blasting glucose range. So if, if you just went to the doctor and they asked, what is a normal glucose range? They'd say under a hundred for fasting glucose. First thing in the morning, haven't eaten for eight hours. If you're under a hundred, you're okay. But if you actually look at the research, people who, um, who are between more set of like 70 and 85 tend to do much better long-term than people who are in the higher range of normal for fasting glucose. So as your glucose goes from the lower end of normal to the higher end of normal, so like from 70 up towards 100 on your fasting glucose, your, your risk for developing diabetes, obesity, heart disease all goes up. So from my standpoint, I'd like to stay in that lower risk range and the lower end of what's normal for fasting glucose. So 70 to 110 for sort of my optimal 24 hour range, 72 to 85 for my fasting glucose. And then kind of sitting in like the high seventies, low eighties, like throughout the day when I'm not eating. And when I eat, I try and go up, you know, maybe 15, 20 points at the most, but, uh, and then I'd like to see it go up in the, you know, maybe 45 minutes and then come down totally to normal within about an hour and a half to two hours. That shows like a healthy insulin response. You digested the food, it went in, it came down. And what, what you'll often see eating sort of like normal American foods, all the processed foods. So things like crackers, chips, breads, tortillas, desserts, sodas, et cetera, is that you might often see a glucose response that's like 70, 80, 90, a hundred points with just like a single snack or drink. So I said, I like to not go up 50, more than 15 to 20 after meals. It would be, if you're not trying or focusing on this, it would be very easy to go up like I said, like 60 to hundred points. And what happens then is that you do get that huge insulin release. And then what you'll often find is that after those meals, you crash down because that insulin caused all that glucose to be sort of soaked up in the cells. You have this exaggerated insulin response, and then you crash to below your pre-meal levels. And that's a, a process called reactive hypoglycemia. And we're basically overshot. And that state, that reactive hypoglycemia is associated with anxiety. It's associated with fatigue. That's sort of that post-meal slump that you might yeah. be feeling where you get your energy zapped. So, and I've seen that on the app a little bit and I've seen yeah. that really sharp spike and then come down. And I, I definitely can associate fatigue with it. That's like when I feel like I want a nap or something. And, um, at a time where you shouldn't, you know, it's daytime, shouldn't be tired necessarily. I, so yeah. Some other things that popped out of me, I wanted to ask you about like other, um, I guess, environmental things that alter blood sugar. Two things that stuck, stood out to me. One is um, exercise. So I exercise almost every day, to some degree. And I definitely see a spike from exercise is, one, is that normal? And to, is it because your body's just shuttling nutrients? So every, like the bloodstream is filled with essentially substrate it needs to make energy like sugar is, does that happen intentionally because you need it? 
Yeah, so this is a super interesting phenomenon that we see where people's glucose, when they are exercising at high intensities, generally high intensities only, you'll actually might see a glucose spike during the workout, even if you haven't eaten anything before the workout. And this is a totally different mechanism that's happening, which is exactly what you just mentioned. Your body is utilizing the stored glucose it has to fuel your workout, basically. So when you start a high intensity workout, so something like a big bike ride or a run or a power lifting type thing, it's going to release a stress hormone in your body. That's a stressor. And so your body's going to release cortisol and catecholamine hormones like adrenaline. And that's actually going to tell your liver, which is the, the place in the body, the liver and the muscles both store some glucose. And you're going to dump that like glucose from the liver into the bloodstream to fuel your muscles. And it's, it's, a, it's, so you can actually think about it, like almost like you're clearing, you're clearing the tank. It's not, it's right. not a bad thing. It's not like food coming in from the outside and the muscles are quite brilliant in that they can actually take up glucose through an insulin independent mechanism. So just the contractility of muscles actually allows them to take up glucose without needing that insulin signal. So it's a totally different pathway. Interesting. And so it doesn't contribute to insulin resistance because you're not wailing away on that mechanism, the muscle could just grab glucose into the cells, into skeletal muscle cells without insulin opening up the door? That's correct. Yeah. So there's that, that muscle insulin independent uh, mechanism that's going to soak it up. And and actually almost all forms of all forms of exercise improve insulin sensitivity over time. So whether it's resistance training aerobic training or even agility flexibility type training all like like yoga all of these improve insulin sensitivity over time so at this point you know with the employees at our company we are all you know into fitness and athletics and we almost use the magnitude of those glucose spikes as a marker of how intense the workout is because it's like the the bigger that spike it means your body like was under that, you know, that potentially good stress and told your body, okay, you're working hard. You need glucose. We're going to dump it from the liver. And you have like office competitions who can get the highest blood sugar spike from working out. I wouldn't say we, we haven't gone that far, but we do, you know, if you follow us on, on Instagram or Twitter at levels, you'll see tons and tons of people posting athletic, uh, spikes. Cause it's very interesting for people to see that. And actually our head of customer success, Mike DiDonato, who's an incredible athlete. And he, over time, has gotten himself to be so metabolically flexible, meaning his diet is so refined to be sort of low and stable glucose that he's, his insulin is likely very low. He's a very good fat oxidizer at this point. He can burn fat effectively, that he's now actually running marathons multiple times per quarter, just on the weekend himself totally fasted, zero food. And I do not recommend that other people try this, um, but he's running 26.2 miles, totally fasted. And what you'll see is that on his, you know, in the beginning, he, his glucose will go up maybe 30, 40 points. That's his body clearing out the stored glucose for the beginning of his run. And then he's likely just going into just really high fat burning for the rest of the, the, the run, not using any gels or goos or anything like, and so again, do not recommend this at home, but it's, it's interesting to see that type of physiology. The average person who just took a run fasted would struggle with that because their body's so used to needing glucose for energy. But, um, but that's, a, you bring up a good point that that's trainable. Like the cool thing about this, I think 
that's very empowering to people, especially if you're suffering, if let's say, you know, most people carry around some amount of excess weight, excess in, in form of fat. And like, this is something that you could get better. Like you could train. And I, I, I used to be pretty heavy. I was about 80 pounds heavier than I am now back in the day. And um, I didn't know any of this stuff back then, but now I've learned that like you can absolutely train this at this ability to switch. So if you feel like your fat's kind of stubborn and you're not good at switching fuel sources, as you practice, just like anything, you get stronger. Like you adapt to that adaptation essentially, and you get good at switching gears or switching substrate. That's exactly right. And that's why we're actually calling this improving metabolic fitness. We're, we really are focused on this term fitness for metabolism because it's exactly what you said. It's just like adaptations. And for building muscles, the reps are you know, lifting weights day after day, month after month. You don't immediately have a big muscle after your first workout. You adapt to having big muscles when you put in the reps. And for metabolism and to be able to get into that metabolically flexible state, the reps are keeping your glucose lower day after day. And how could we possibly do that if we're not testing it? I mean, we could follow a general low carbohydrate diet, but there's actually a few problems with that. One is that, and you've alluded to this earlier, is that each body is different. Each body actually responds to food differently. So you and I could both eat a banana and my glucose could go up 70 points and yours could go up five points based on our body types, our microbiome, how much sleep we got last night, how much stress we're under today. For you, that might be a good metabolic choice. For me, it's a bad one. So it, it's actually really individualized. So just following like a blanketed low carb diet can be challenging sometimes uh, to really like be precise, but having a tracking tool can, can accelerate that and, and move past just the constant trial and error that we're often doing with our nutrition regimens. So yeah, so I think it's absolutely, we need to think of this as a continuum, a spectrum. This is something we can train but we do have to actually do the reps so that our cells can change and adapt to become these, you know, more metabolically flexible machines. And a lot of that is tied in with insulin. And, you know, I think it's, it's also worth mentioning, you know, you mentioned the exercise, but there's, there's other things other than just food and exercise that impact our glucose levels and our insulin sensitivity. The other, you know, two really big ones that we have control over, I think day in and day out are stress and sleep. So, so food, stress management, sleep, and exercise are kind of the four pillars that all feed into our glucose response. And, you know, it's just, it's the stress thing is interesting because, you know, when we stress, we release cortisol and that's going to keep our blood sugar essentially elevated. So we want to, we want to really think about mindfulness. And, and why is that? So when cortisol, is that because like your body's in the, I'm fighting the tiger and I need nutrients at my extremities? Is it Precisely. Okay. Yeah. So, so that, you know, and, and we're exposed to more of these chronic stressors these days than I think we may have been historically where there were like acute severe threats that, but now a lot of our threats are more psychological in nature. You know, we're getting stressful text messages, having stressful conversations, there's honking, there's our digital world, there's the sensationalist media, there's all this stuff happening. So it's this constant low-grade stress. And I think that's massively affecting our metabolic health as a country. And then we're sleeping less than we, than we have historically on average. And sleep deprivation, even getting one hour less per sleep 
sleep per night than your body actually needs can make you significantly more insulin resistant the next day. And so sleep is just one of those. Wow. Those, that's interesting. That, yeah. That quick. And then how long, like any, is there any understanding out there about like how long it takes to regroup from that? I mean, it, does it, is it just a few days later or? Yeah, there is actually research on that. So one of these, these great studies looked at a group of, I think it was like 11 young, healthy men, and they made them sleep four hours per night for about a week. And within that, just so sleeping, and that's a lot of sleep deprivation, but four hours a night for a week, they all went from being basically non-diabetic to pre-diabetic in that wow. time. Then they flipped them and put them in, they could sleep as much as they wanted. So like unlimited sleep the next week. And they all, you know, bounced back and came back. But you can imagine like a college student who might be getting five and a half, six and a half hours of sleep per night for years, like what that could be doing to their, their body. And there was another interesting study that showed that if you took someone from seven and a half hours of sleep, these numbers might be just a tiny bit off, but it was like seven and a half hours of sleep to just get, having them get six and a half hours of sleep. When they then did a test the next day of insulin sensitivity, which is called an oral glucose tolerance test. It's basically where you take a drink that has 75 grams of glucose, and then you see how the glucose responds over the course of two hours. So the people who were sleep deprived by an hour and those who had a normal amount of sleep, they had the exact same glucose curve for the oral glucose tolerance test, but the sleep deprived people had to produce 50% more insulin to get that same curve. Oh, so it basically made them transiently insulin resistant. So, yeah. So it's just like, it just gets down to the basics. You know, it's, it's a, a diet that's, that's thoughtfully, you know, selected. It's getting the sleep every night. It's, it's taking the deep breaths when we get a stressful email and, and managing our cortisol, you know, the stress management, and then making sure we're being physically active. And a key part of the physical activity is that while exercising for, you know, 30 minutes or an hour each day is great. What might be even better for metabolic health is actually just, um, also just staying active throughout the day. It seems like long periods of muscle inactivity. So like sitting at a desk for eight hours is very, very bad for our insulin sensitivity. And even standing up and walking around for two minutes every half hour has been shown in quite a few research studies to improve insulin sensitivity in 24 hour glucose levels. So it's, it's, it's not that hard, like just set a timer for every 30 minutes and then walk for two minutes and it, it, it activates these massive muscle groups. Even when you're walking your quads, your hamstrings, your glutes, they have to contract when you're walking. And like you said, it's this glucose repository, it's a glucose sink. And so it can really keep things stable, even with just a little bit of light walking throughout the day. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, and that's something I've noticed on my app. So one of the, I guess, one of the real blessings that have arisen in my life during these last you know, eight, nine months or whatever we're going through now is I've started walking more. So I, I walk with my daughter after dinner every night and it's not long. It's a, you know, the end of the neighborhood back, it's probably 20 minutes round trip, but it definitely makes a difference. If I, if I miss a walk, I notice that I have a bigger spike. And I think I've heard someone else once that was using a CG, a continuous glucose monitor, they said that right before a meal that they would like knock out a big set of squats or something in their kitchen when they're cooking just to get the muscles hungry so that, you know, you have extra, extra storage space essentially 
in the moment when the glucose is coming in. So yeah, it, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time. I actually have a habit of, yeah, I cook almost every night and, um, <laughs> I'm weird. Like I'll, I'll do these moves that are like body weight exercises in my kitchen while I'm like waiting for the water to boil yes. or, um, I get, uh, kind of silly about it. My family already thinks I'm crazy though. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of just part of the scenery around my house around, uh, you know, dinner time. The other environmental thing that stuck out to me, I, another part of, I guess like my daily practices, I usually have some kind of heat exposure, usually in the form of sauna, like infrared sauna, or I take Epsom salt baths. And, and that definitely spikes it. Is that like you acting as exercise or is that a different mechanism? What's causing that spike there? Yeah, there could be two things there that are worth mentioning. So one is that a heat stressor can generate that whole stress cascade of you know, cortisol and getting the, the liver to release glucose into the bloodstream, but that also may be related to sensor error. So the sensors are quite sensitive to heat. And so we have found that just heat exposure alone can, can create some, you know, perturbations in the glucose response. The same thing with um, cold baths and things like that, you can see a little bit of error. So it, it very well could be a mix of both of those things. But, but that's not a problem. Like that's not is that's not taking advantage of our like insulin signaling pro mechanism or, or is it? Yeah, it's the, the consensus and I, there haven't been great human studies in heat and cold exposure for metabolic health, but, okay. but generally it's, it's thought that these things are actually good for our mitochondrial function. They are stimulating the mitochondria to be more efficient. That's the part of the cell that converts glucose to energy we can use like ATP. So so the consensus is really generally that, that these things are positive for our overall metabolic health. Um, the cold exposure is getting really popular now with like cold baths and cold plunges and cold showers and things like this. And they're thought of as a hormetic stressor. So this sort of like low grade stress that's gonna ultimately make us adapt better in the future. And a lot of studies actually be done in mice where they put mice under intense cold exposure. And what they've found in mice is that they actually cold exposure, even for short periods of time, increases the amount of mitochondria in each cell, mitochondrial biogenesis. And you actually see what's called an increase in brown fat. We have white fat, which is the main type of fat that we see in our bodies as an adult, but actually babies have a lot of this stuff called brown fat, which is brown because it's filled with mitochondria. So it generates tons of heat from all this metabolic activity. And it seems like cold exposure as an adult can potentially generate more of this brown fat, make us increase our sort of metabolic churn and activity. So can't wait to see more studies happen about that type of stuff in humans, but, but you do see this in, in rats. When so you I've heard that term. So the brown fat basically means it has more, more mitochondria per area. Yep. Okay. Exactly. The mitochondria is the like where the magic happens. So that's where we're taking like food or let's maybe like chemical energy, turning it into electrical energy and then mechanical energy like through the movement of electrons essentially the release of the electron of atp is what's creating all the things that happen in our body yeah you know, that's you know, that's right yeah so you can imagine you've got this 
you know, sphere that is your cell, you've got the insulin receptor, the glucose receptor, the glucose is going to come into the cell. It's going to travel inside the cells, the mitochondria, where a number of biochemical, you know, processes are going to happen that takes that glucose and basically uses its, its energy in the form of electrons and, and cellular bonds and whatnot to eventually drive this, this electron channel that creates, like you said, electrical energy essentially. And that's going to generate, um, adenosine triphosphate ATP oh. that's going to actually generate the ATP molecules themselves. Gotcha. And then okay. those go around and donate phosphate groups, the P and the ATP to other proteins and such in the cell that actually that that's there. They can dump energy then to other parts of the cell to basically it's currency that could be used in the cell gotcha. for energy. So I dropped we, out of school a little early. So I like getting those little tidbits of education. No, you got <laughs> it. I mean, that's your exact, it's basically, it is this, it is this miraculous, crazy, complicated turbine, essentially like a, that, that is generating, um, that is generating new forms of energy. And it's, it's pretty beautiful. Um, there's gotcha. amazing YouTube videos online showing 3d, uh, renderings of this type of process in the mitochondria. So I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with some, but they're really fun to watch. Cool. Uh, well, before we wrap it up, there was something you alluded to before we hit record, that was interesting. And I guess it was regards to relationship with food and relationship with eating. And I think that's something that most people could benefit to some degree. I know I've played around with my food, just trying to find what like works best for a long time. I've done a lot of fasting protocols, a lot of intermittent fasting. And one thing that I, I get out of it is just altering the relationship. And I think some people, you alluded to the idea that some people could look at tech as I don't know, like cluttering that relationship and having a negative effect. And I really look at this tool as an opportunity to, to build more self-awareness and alter your relationship with your, with your body and your food and take a more mindful approach where, you know, it, it's very positive. And, you know, I think a lot of people could benefit with like learning like oh I see this and I feel this I'm learning about myself and I mean yeah you could maybe get carried away and get a little OCD with that you know but for most people I think that's a great opportunity to learn really important lessons about yourself and how you're thinking about your food and what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. I think there's huge potential for, for tech in this type of case to really bring us back to our body and our sense of body awareness. I think, especially with nutrition, because we've never had closed loop biofeedback, we've never been able to just, you know, it's really an open loop system where you do something, you do a set of actions, like have a meal that's very, very complex, a lot of different components. And, and then maybe the next day you weigh more, or maybe you're a little tired that night, or maybe six months later, your cholesterol is higher, you know, but th there's no actual feedback loop between the food you're eating and what's actually happening to your body. And so we end up, it's very difficult to optimize because we don't have a one-to-one -one relationship between inaction and a reaction. And fundamentally, I think behavior change is most effective when we close the loop between an action and a reaction. And you have more of that one-to-one -one relationship between what you're doing and what the outcome is. So 
you know, it's, it, it really, it really accelerates behavior change in a, in a unique way because it kind of takes some the emotionality and the questioning and the misattribution out of things that can be very, very stressful. So we have an emotional relationship with food. There's no question to that. It's not just a, you know, form of sustenance, but it's also very much part of our community and our, you know, for many people coping and enjoyment and pleasure. But I kind of think of glucose tracking as like food poisoning. It's like, if you, if you get, if you eat a bunch of clams and then the next, that night you're throwing up like over and over and over again, like it's like, you're just never eating clams again. Your body is just like, I don't want these. This is not good for me. And, um, you, you're not like sad to part with that food. You just have a negative association with it from then, then on out. And it's kind of that way with seeing a glucose spike after eating a food that you might love. It's like, you know, I was eating oatmeal for years for breakfast, thinking that it was like a super heart healthy food. And there's all this marketing about it. But when I saw that it spiked my glucose to 200, I just never wanted to eat it again. It wasn't emotional. It was just like, well, this is not a good choice. And, you know, eating something else for breakfast is going to be like a, you know, half an avocado with some tahini and chia seeds and, you know, just something different. Like it's, it's going to cause no glucose spike, total game changer, but it wasn't emotional. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity to help people move past what is often like a real struggle of trial and error to figure out what works for their body and let it be a lot more efficient. You know, people might say, oh, having this is going to make you obsess about food, but I think it's the opposite. I think it actually makes it much more efficient to figure out what works for your body. And we've had a lot of customers who in the course of a month doing a lot of experimentation and learning about how their foods are affecting them have been able to just like move forth after that month and, and you know, have a whole new set of, of foods that they know are the right parts of their, of their diet. And so, so I think that really, you know, helps people understand themselves and their choices better and can make it really efficient. And then the second thing that I think is positive for people is that it's not necessarily all about elimination or getting rid of things. You mentioned the sweet potato example, like, yes, a cup of sweet potato might spike your glucose, but you know, there's so many things we can do to foods to actually make them more glycemically friendly for us. We have this whole toolbox of things. We can obviously eat a smaller portion, but we could, we could add fat or protein or fiber. All of those three things have been shown to lower a glucose response when you pair it with carbohydrates. We could sequence our meals differently. When we eat our fat and protein first and our carbs second, we tend to have less of a glucose response. We could eat it earlier in the day when we tend to be more insulin sensitive. We could walk afterwards. We could make sure we're eating those carbs and we've gotten lots of sleep. There's all these things we can do to build a context in the body that actually processes glucose more effectively. So I think to me, it feels, I just, you know, I think people would be fearful that like, oh, this is going to make my diet no fun because I can't eat the things that I love. But in a lot of ways, I think we can actually just learn to see ourselves as this complex multidimensional system where a lot of these different choices we're making interplay with each other and just create the best possible context in the body for, for healthy eating and to have the least collateral damage possible with the foods we're choosing to eat. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I haven't found anything negative personally about it, using it. I don't, and I, I am one to get a little obsessive about some things. And I don't sense that I'm having like negative relationships emerge with food. It's more like it's a little uh, gamified, so kind of exciting. 
But um, it does make it like more matter of fact, like, oh, if you see a 200, it's like, oh, that decision's easy. Right. You know, it's, it makes it very clean, like very, like you say, efficient. I have one other question about the, the levels itself, like the blood sugar levels. And then I want to learn more about and help the audience learn how they could try this if they want. Um, like if you were trying to tell what's more important, let's say you eat a meal and your blood sugar spikes really high, but it comes down pretty quickly. Is that inherently better or worse than it doesn't go as high, but it goes too high still, but then it stays there longer. Like, is it the area under the curve, the total area that matters, or is it how quick we get back down? Yeah. So the answer to that question is it's not, not fully known. They're going to call, they're going to basically tell us different things. Um, I would say the huge spike is more indicative of a poor choice. You know, if it goes straight up and straight down, that means you probably ate something with tons of carbs, but your insulin response was strong and good. And you were able to soak it up into the cells and it was, you know, you were able to clear it from the bloodstream going up a bit and then staying elevated for a while can be more indicative potentially of insulin resistance. So you're make you have that insulin, but it's not actually getting that glucose into the cells out of the bloodstream. So, you know, someone could eat something that's maybe not so spiky. It's not such a big glucose load, but they did eat some carbohydrates and then it just kind of stayed high for a while because you're not clearing it well. So, so those things are going to kind of tell us different things about, um, about what's happening, but area under the curve, like you mentioned, which is essentially, you can imagine a, a curve of a glucose spike for people listening that shaded area underneath the bigger, the number for area under the curve that is more associated with metabolic problems. So we want to keep area under the curve as low as possible. So the idea would be a little teeny, you know, 10 points up after a meal, and then it comes immediately back down. And then, you know, that same person could also go up a hundred points if they drank a soda, but it might still come straight back down. That'd still be a fairly low area of the curve. Then someone who's a little bit more on the metabolic dysfunction spectrum, a little bit more insulin resistant, might eat a moderate meal and go up, you know, 50 points and then stay elevated for two hours. That's that's not ideal. That means there's trouble clearing glucose from the from at, the at what point should it hit its peak? Even if it's a little bump, is, should that be within a half hour? Yeah. In studies, it's generally between 45 minutes to an hour for a healthy person. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, you guys sent me one of these. It's been awesome. I I really thank you all for the gift. Um, This I got I didn't wasn't sure if this was like a beta version. Is this rolled out officially for people to try? We are still in a closed beta program. So we do have a wait list. So the best thing to do would for, be for people to sign up for our wait list at levelshealth.com. And we'll keep you posted and up to date on our ability to get you into the program. And uh, we hope for a full launch in early 2021 okay. uh, where we can really start servicing more customers. So yeah, check us out, levelshealth.com, at Levels on Instagram and Twitter. And we have a lot of great metabolic health information on our blog at levelshealth.com slash blog. So highly recommend that for people who are interested in learning more. Okay, so for the listeners now, check out the blog, learn more, get ready. This will be available soon. It's really an outstanding tool and it's priced really reasonably. Uh, I really thank you for rolling it out the way you did. And I'm excited to dive a little bit deeper and finish my trial. And um, 
I appreciate all, and not to mention the support you guys have provided. I've gone back and forth with some questions about this thing and, you know, getting email responses within minutes and it's been really helpful and I really love what I'm learning. I might take, I, I might not look at it tomorrow. I'm not going to, um, you know, try to be smart on Thanksgiving. <laughs> I'll use that as an opportunity to go off track. But, uh, <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll, I'll still check it out. But um, I really thank you, Casey. Is there anything else you'd like to share for the audience in regards to your, the work you're doing or what they should be looking out for? I would just say, you know, none of this is a one-way street with health. We can always move in the right direction. And, you know, I think there's a lot of wonderful health leaders out there. A lot of the people you're having on your podcast who are, are helping, you know, share the word about how to kind of move in the right direction. And so certainly um, nothing but hope to be feeling, I think, in health right now. And, uh, and uh, definitely not a one-way street. We can all, we can all improve. And um, a lot of people here to support that process. Well, that's a great message. And this is definitely, uh, I think, I don't know, overlooked, but um, you know, a lot of people are just, it's not on their radar, you know, how important blood sugar is. So it's awesome that, you know, we have access to a tool or soon we'll have an access that we could, you know, improve our life and take a little bit more control at this channel, empowering people to play a bigger role in their well-being is really important. And this just speaks to that perfectly. So I want to thank you again for taking the time to have this discussion and educating us. And really, I'm grateful for the work that you guys are doing. I'm really excited to see how this could really move the needle from like a, a population you know, basis of, of health. And I feel like that we're kind of trying to turn around a cruise ship on a societal level. So I'm really excited that this is gonna be introduced into the population. And uh, over time, I think it'll have a tremendous impact so I thank you for that. And for the listeners out there, I'm really great for you, grateful that you guys tuned in today. If you have any questions about this, shoot us our way. Check out more at levelshealth.com. Send us a, a comment if you have any questions. And I hope you guys stay tuned for more episodes. Everybody out there, have a great day. Well, once again, thank you again, audience, for listening. I really appreciate you tuning in. I hope you got some value out of that conversation. I definitely did. I really enjoyed this one. Casey is just so pleasant and just such a good communicator on this topic and I'm really grateful for the work that her and her team are doing to bring this to market and I'm really grateful that they offered me a chance to try it. I found it just tremendously useful. I look forward to using it again sometime in the future. I'm thinking I'll probably revisit the tool maybe every six to 12 months just to check in to see if there's any adjustments I can make in my lifestyle. So thanks again. Again, if you are enjoying these podcasts, please let us know by just leaving a positive review on your podcast player. And of course, if you think you know someone that would enjoy this or get value out of this episode, uh, I ask you to please share it. Thanks again. I hope everybody out there has a terrific day.